This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we look ahead at the inauguration of a new president for Honduras. And we'll explore the Japanese diaspora and its effects on Latin America. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with our weekly roundup of news from around the Latin American region. The Mexican state of Michoacán is slowly returning to some normalcy after a wave of violence between the Mexican army, vigilante self-defense forces, and the drug cartel, the Knights Templar. However, as with several other states, Mexico's central government does not have control of the state, a front line in the drug war for much of the past decade. Schools in the region are opening again this week after being closed due to the violence. Juan Figueroa is a teacher in Ampansigan who talked about the reopening. According to the lists, we have 70% of the student body here at school. We hope that in the next few days, order will be restored and all the students will come back. Enrique Peña Nieto, Mexico's president, has repeatedly sent troops to Michoacán to attempt to restore order, despite his declarations that the government has not lost its grip on the state. Some self-defense groups refuse to disarm until the government captures the cartel leaders. The Knights Templar claim they are protecting the citizens from rival gangs. The gang originated as a self-defense type of group against the Zeta cartel. Despite protests from the Mexican government, the state of Texas executed Edgar Tomayo Arias, a Mexican citizen, this week. A Texas court convicted Tamayo of the murder of a policeman in Houston 20 years ago. Tamayo's case proved to be a diplomatic problem between the U.S. and Mexico for years because Tamayo was denied the right to contact his embassy for legal support. A decade ago, the International Court of Justice in The Hague ruled the U.S. had violated Tamayo's rights and the rights of 50 other Mexicans on death row. The International Court ordered a review of their cases. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled such reviews were unnecessary unless the U.S. Congress decided otherwise. The U.S. Supreme Court refused to stay Tamayo's execution. Panama and North Korea have settled a dispute over smuggled arms. North Korea has agreed to pay more than $650,000 in fines after it was caught smuggling armaments through the Panama Canal. Panamanian authorities seized a North Korean freighter in the canal last summer. Inside, hidden under tons of sugar, inspectors found MiG fighter jets, anti-aircraft systems, and other weapons, all provided by the Cuban government. Cuba claimed the arms were old and being sent to North Korea for repairs. However, authorities found they were modernized and all in working order. The United Nations bans North Korea from importing and exporting most weapons because of its pursuit of nuclear weapons. Argentina's President Cristina Fernández de Kirchner 
made her first public speech this week after an absence from public appearances for six weeks. Fernandez underwent surgery in October to remove blood clots in her brain. Her speech was mainly about the announcement of new government programs for young people. But she also took the opportunity to criticize the media for what she called exaggerating her health issues. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. Next week, Juan Orlando Hernandez of the National Party in Honduras takes the reins as president in his country. But this follows a controversial election where Hernandez beat his nearest rival, Giamar Castro de Zelaya, of the Libre Party by a quarter of a million votes, although some have called those results into question given a number of electoral irregularities. Hernandez was also a congressional leader during the even more controversial coup led by the Honduran Congress that ousted President Manuel Zelaya from power in 2009. We asked Alex Main of the Center for Economic and Policy Research for perspective on Hernandez and Honduras. Here are excerpts from our conversation conducted via Skype. Well, certainly we know in terms of the electoral process itself that there were a huge number of irregularities that were identified throughout the country of different sorts. Um, There was a great deal of vote buying that occurred on the part of the National Party. Uh, that occurred right in plain view in front of a lot of voting centers. There was a great deal of voter coercion and coercion also of uh, the representatives of the parties that were present at voting centers. Um, There were problems with the voter registry where uh, a lot of people who were quite alive uh, were listed as uh, dead and couldn't vote. Um, And uh, there were also problems with the voting uh, tally sheets uh, themselves, where there were a lot of discrepancies that occurred, and um, there were discrepancies between what the party witnesses recorded at the voting centers and uh, what appeared ultimately um, on the webpage of the electoral authority, uh, which showed some significant differences. So... Um, These elections were contested by um, the Libre Party, which uh, came in second according to the official results in terms of uh, both the presidential elections and uh, in the legislative elections. Uh, And they were also contested by uh, another new party, um, the the Libre Party having just uh, come into existence about two years ago, and another new party called the Anti-Corruption Party, which, um, contrary to Libre, leans more uh, to the right. They're a new party as well, and they also um, identified a great deal of uh, similar discrepancies and contested these elections uh, with the electoral authority and um, also made claims to the Honduran judiciary. And these claims were ultimately um, thrown out And there was no uh, real recount of either the tally sheets or votes themselves as these parties had asked for. Uh, And so, you know, there really is a a veil of um, mystery as to, you know, what the real results uh, of these elections were. Um, But as it stands, uh, the official results put uh, the National Party, um, the incumbent party, uh, the incumbent party of government, Um, at the top, um, nearly 10 points ahead of the Libre Party. And of course, the Libre Party is a product of the resistance movement that came out of the 
uh, coup d'etat of June 2009. Um, after that coup, there was a, a huge resistance movement. You could call it a pro-democracy movement as well uh, that called for the restoration of the uh, elected president who had been ousted, Manuel Zelaya, uh, called for the restoration of democracy, um, and also had calls for a constituent assembly. Uh, they were a grassroots movement, very strong throughout the country. And then two years ago, um, after a good deal of debate, uh, they decided to um, really channel energies and resources into being a party and to try the electoral route, even though there were a lot of doubts as to what would happen there. And I think these doubts have been confirmed with these elections. We saw quickly the United States, the European Union, other countries verifying these elections as, as free and fair, despite all of the listed problems. Why do you think that that happened? Well, I think, you know, uh, these institutions that uh, do electoral monitoring, whether the Organization of American States, uh, whether the European uh, Union um, electoral missions, uh, whether the Carter Center, um, they're often viewed as uh, completely neutral um, organizations. And I think these elections really show that that's not the case. And there are other elections, uh, the elections of, for instance, uh, 2010, uh, 2010, 2011 in Haiti, uh, that showed a great deal of bias on the part of the Organization of American States. Uh, so I think, you know, you have to be clear that there um, always is some sort of political agenda going into these elections. So you're even and calling the Carter Center into account on, on this. They, they did, Carter Center, I think, did say that there should be some sort of recount mechanism or, or at least some, some sort of review of the votes, which did not happen. I, th I think in general, the, the Carter Center has shown itself um, to be generally uh, sort of the most professional and um, probably does the best job at uh, trying to be neutral in a lot of elections. In these elections, uh, they had a very small presence. It was a small delegation from the Carter Center that was there. Um, and, uh, you know, they didn't do any in-depth monitoring throughout the country. And I think that's reflected a little bit in their reporting on the elections, which isn't uh, very extensive. And, and it isn't very definitive either. Um, I think the one thing about the Carter Center in these elections is that they didn't really give a strong sense of whether they truly thought that these elections were free and fair, uh, contrary to organ the Organization of American States and the European Union. Uh, that both did um, sort of endorse uh, the elections. Now, there were other um, less, less well-known um, electoral monitoring missions um, from various civil society groups from the United States. Um, and uh, there was uh, the FIDH, the International Federation of Human Rights, uh, that had a significant delegation. And uh, these uh, various... Um, delegations that really had hundreds of people throughout the country, including a, a very strong delegation from the Honduras uh, Solidarity Network, uh, they did a very good job at um, documenting uh, irregularities and reporting them. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the reporting that they did uh, never made it into the mainstream press, which seemed to be focused uh, really exclusively on what um, these bigger monitoring uh, organizations were saying about the elections. Well, at this point, now, elections, free and fair or not, we have Juan Orlando Hernandez uh, about to be sworn in as president. What, what do you predict going forward we'll see 
in Honduras under Hernandez? Well, I, I don't think there'll be big surprises. Um, Hernandez uh, already had a good deal of power um, under this last administration as the president of Honduras's Congress. Uh, so, you know, the second most powerful um, politician in Honduras, some people argue actually the most powerful, perhaps more powerful uh, than uh, President Lobo um, of the National Party, who was seen as quite weak during his administration. And Hernandez um, pushed a, you know, what he would call a security agenda very hard. Others would call it a militarization agenda. Um, part of his legacy as the president of Congress was the creation of um, the military police, where uh, you have uh, thousands of troops from the army uh, that are now um, functioning as police in the country, um, supposedly to crack down on organized crime, but already they have been involved in raids on the homes of Libre activists, of um, union activists, and um, they are seen as, um, certainly by a lot of people in the country, as a potential instrument of uh, repression. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, there was a very strong uh, resistance movement. Uh, it may become uh, strong once again, given the outcome of these elections, uh, given the fact that there were so many irregularities and, and many of uh, many Hondurans believe uh, that uh, you know the current government is illegitimate, and this could lead to uh, the resistance coming back in force, carrying out um, peaceful demonstrations as it had in the months after uh, the coup, and and of course having um, something like the military police there uh, that can carry out uh, repression throughout the country um, is extremely uh, troubling. Well, wasn't this part of the intimidation factor during the election and the run-up to the election? Well, absolutely, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because the run-up uh, to the election uh, was perhaps is perhaps something more noteworthy uh, in terms of uh, the electoral outcome than the electoral process itself because, um, yes, you had a great deal of intimidation that was taking place um, on the part of the security forces, but more than that, you had actual killings of um, political party activists and candidates, um, mostly from the Libre Party, uh, something like uh, 24 documented killings of uh, Libre uh, Party candidates and activists um, over the two years uh, before uh, these elections uh, took place, and a great deal of attacks, um, death threats, raids on homes, and so on uh, that took place. It's not clear, of course, who um, perpetrated all of these abuses, um, but in, in many cases, uh, they're believed to be, uh, at the very least, links to uh, the government, um, involvement of security forces. Um, it is uh, seen really as classic uh, paramilitary activity, uh, such as what was rampant in Honduras back in the 1980s. What concerns you about Honduras going forward? Well, what concerns me is that, uh, you know, this constant violence, and of course there is generalized violence throughout the country, Honduras having now the highest homicide rate uh, in the world, uh, but violence uh, that targets um, a lot of these groups uh, that are seen as a potential threat to the, the government, to the current regime. Uh, of course, this has been going on and there's been a pattern of this violence ever since the coup of 2009, 
but um, it seemed to intensify in the months before these elections. And of course, uh, given the current situation where uh, the National Party is in terms of actual votes, you know, whether legitimate or not, um, weaker than it was uh, under the previous administration. They're certainly weaker in Congress, where uh, Libre is uh, the second force, uh, followed by the Liberal Party. So there's a lot of potential for a great deal of stalemate, and this can lead to, of course, heightened political tension. And unfortunately, in Honduras, the record shows that political tension is resolved uh, through violence, um, violence that seems to be exercised either by state security forces or uh, by individuals that have some sort of links to the Honduran authorities. Thank you very much, Alex Main of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, our guest today on Latin Pulse. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, we explore Japanese emigration and its impacts on Latin America. Some do not know that the largest ethnic Japanese population in the world, outside of Japan, resides in Brazil with about 1.5 million people. The Japanese diaspora that began in the late 19th and early 20th centuries also touched Peru, Paraguay, Argentina, and other countries in the region. We spoke with Dan Masterson of the U.S. Naval Academy about this immigration story. Masterson is the author of the book, The Japanese in Latin America. Here are excerpts from our long-distance phone conversation. The Japanese, although their numbers weren't very large, were very instrumental in many aspects of the uh, Latin American nations in terms of their development and race relations and the whole question of security during World War II and uh, the building of immigrant communities. Uh, And I determined that Brazil in particular, which received the vast number of Japanese, particularly after the uh, first decade of the 20th century, uh, that was an extremely important issue with regard to um, uh, immigration, particularly to southern Brazil. And I had specialized in Peru before and determined that uh, Peru had received some of the earliest Japanese immigrants uh, in the late 1890s and early 20th century, and that Uh, they had become a very important element of the urban populations of Lima, Peru in particular, where most of the Japanese had settled. You mentioned Brazil prominently and made note that um, the Japanese, even though the numbers aren't great, have this wider influence in Latin America. But aren't there also numbers in Brazil? Well, it depends upon how you define Japanese. Uh, Now, whether, because there has been... Uh, significant uh, race mixing among the third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation of Japanese in Latin America, and particularly in Brazil. Um, so what the best way to put that would be a million or more people of Japanese heritage is what they usually say. And uh, so I think that's, that's true. There's no question about it. So yes, the, uh, and most 
almost all of the Japanese in Brazil are in the south, in Sao Paulo State and, and certainly in Rio, uh, Rio de Janeiro State as well. So, And they have dominated certain areas of the Sao Paulo economy, such as uh, agriculture, truck farming, and, and that kind of thing. Aren't these Japanese communities in Brazil, Peru, and elsewhere known for also maintaining a per- particular traditional Japanese style and, and keeping those um, memories of their past and their heritage alive? Almost every place in Latin America that has a Japanese population has have Japanese cultural centers. They have a very prominent one in prominent ones in Brazil. They have a very prominent one uh, in Lima. Uh, it's called the Janai Center, and at that place um, they have a wonderful library. They have um, very frequent theater uh, programs, concerts, all of which are designed. They have what they call gate ball, which is croquet, what we what we associate with croquet. So they do a great deal to try to retain uh, the, their Japanese cultural heritage as much as they can. But the reality of that is that, uh, as they've told me themselves, that mostly what you see in those Japanese um, uh, cultural centers are older people. Um, maybe in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Let me go back to one point that you made very early on about this reverse diaspora between Brazil and Japan, that the Japanese government in the 80s and 90s wanted those Japanese to come back to home soil. Why why did they encourage that, and and what happened with that particular policy? Japan is the oldest society, one of the oldest societies in the world, uh, and they were literally running out of labor, particularly in the heavy industries, the auto industry, uh, into, uh, in electrical products, uh, that kind of thing, and they needed labor desperately. And many Japanese uh, do not consider working in those plants uh, desirable. Uh, but they thought that uh, bringing ethnic, ethnic Japanese to Japan would be the perfect solution. Uh, and in many ways, it fulfilled the bill for a short period of time. But what they found, and I witnessed this myself on a trip to Japan, what they found was that the Japanese Latin Americans did not integrate very well into Japanese society. They didn't speak Japanese. At least the, the older ones did not speak Japanese. And oftentimes they weren't interested or they didn't have the time to take Japanese language uh, lessons and so forth. Uh, culturally, they didn't eat the same food. Uh, I visited a uh, Japanese-Brazilian bar in uh, Yokohama, and it was an interesting experience because uh, Japanese, I should say, Brazilian soccer was on the TV. They were playing Brazilian music. They were eating feijoada, which is a Brazilian dish. Uh, And I I had the same experience in a Japanese-Peruvian restaurant as well. and to be very frank, uh, they were discriminated against. Uh, there's all kinds of evidence that the Japanese were looked upon as gaijin, as Japanese Latin Americans have looked upon as gaijin or foreigners. I'm reminded of the importance of this because of the death last week of the World War II Japanese hero, who after 
he came back from the war, um, he he settled in Brazil, um, mm-hmm. and and so what is was the cause this push cause to have several generations of Japanese moving to Brazil and moving to Latin America? Well, I can't speak for the veteran, uh, but what I can speak for is the early Japanese settlers. Mostly, they were from the southern prefectures of of Japan, the poorest uh, parts of Japan. That part of the country which was uh, the most, uh, shall we say, the most affected by the process of modernization and industrialization and the uh, closing down of individual farms, turning over to rental properties, and so when we when we talk about prefectures, we're we're talking about the equivalent of a state. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. It's almost uh, exactly the same as a state, and so Japan is divided into I think eighty some prefectures, uh, and they are not just legal and political. I think in many cases they have, as I said, they've had strong social implications once these people have, uh, these Japanese have left, and. To, I guess, to get to the quick, uh, quickly to the issue, many of these Japanese had really very little opportunity at all uh, facing them in Japan. The government was encouraging them to to immigrate. They established immigration companies. They subsidized immigration. They cooperated with the Brazilian government in accommodating these. The Brazilian government wanted them first. To come to work on the coffee plantations as uh, coffee pickers, uh, because slavery had ended. Many of the slaves had left the plantations in the 1890s and early 20th century, and they had filled the gap with Italian labor through a, a contractual rela- relationship with the uh, Brazilian government. But um, I think in about 1903, 1904. The Italian government broke that agreement, uh, the so-called Prenetti Accords, because it was felt that the Brazilian uh, fazendeiros were mistreating the Italian laborers. And so Brazil had to come up with some substitute labor, and that was the main reason why Japanese were brought to the country in the first place. Uh, Very quickly, though, those Japanese, uh, using a lot of their skills, agricultural skills and hard work, were able to move off the plantations and uh, purchase some small plots of land for themselves and become independent farmers. Now, in other cases, the Brazilian government and the Japanese and the Japanese government would cooperate in colonizing efforts, uh, colonizing individual uh, groups of of Japanese immigrants into colonies in the interior of Sao Paulo State. And there they would become literally independent colonists working on what could be called almost like small Japanese communities set right into the Brazilian hinterland. And in many cases they were almost completely cut off from Brazilian society, Brazilian government. And a lot of these communities, they didn't speak uh any Portuguese, they spoke Japanese exclusively, and they became literally uh, Japanese communities away from home. We don't see those enclaves existing now, though, much more mixing, as you mentioned. Yes. Um, Well, first of all, 
you have to talk about the World War II experience, too, because that was really critical uh, in disrupting. It stopped, of course, all Japanese immigration. So that stopped in 1938 and never really uh, renewed again. Uh, that, there was some trickle of Japanese immigration in the, in the 60s and so forth. Thank you so much, Dan okay. Masterson, the author of The Japanese in Latin America, Dan Masterson of the U.S. Naval Academy, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you for having me. And now a programming note. Latin Pulse is going back to its traditional schedule next week. We've been coming to you mostly on Thursdays since the fall, but we return to our Friday debut schedule again starting next week. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel, and announcer Victor Kilo. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escúchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions. Música